Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. Uh, today, we have a terrific program. Amitabh Chandra from the Harvard Kennedy School is our guest, and Amitabh is one of my favorite healthcare economists. He's able to cut through the clutter, sees things the, w- the way they really are, calls a spade a spade, and in today's healthcare environment, we need nothing more than truth-telling. So, Amitabh, welcome to Market Corner Conversations. We're delighted to have you here today. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. Are there any, any topics you in particular want to talk about? Or, um... Yeah, yeah. In American healthcare, we have two goals. We want to improve the patient experience. We want to improve patient you know, quality outcomes, but we also need to reduce cost. Right. And it's not the case that the same thing does achieve both goals. I agree. It can, but it doesn't have to. So there are a lot of things we need to do that will improve quality and patient outcomes. They often require us to do more, which often means more spending. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. We should absolutely do them. But we should not think that because we improved quality or because we improved outcomes, we have automatically lowered spending. Yeah, terrific. Well, Amitabh, uh, why don't you tell us how you stumbled into um, into healthcare? You know, labor economists have many things they can do, and very few end up uh, with the deep type of market knowledge that you have in in healthcare. Could you just tell the audience how you managed to uh, end up in the position you're in today, studying the topics you're studying? Dave, you know, we're one minute into the podcast and you've already exposed me for the fraud that I am. You know, <laughs> I, I'm a complete outsider to healthcare and am completely self-taught. And so what that means is there's a bunch of things that I know, but there are many things that I don't know. I stumbled into it um, much like a labor economist would. You know, I was studying, I was studying wages and employment. And at some point, I you know, just was looking at some data this is a different kind of labor economics. I was looking at when is it that women give birth to children? And I saw this spike in late December, like in very late December, and a corresponding dip in early January, like you know, in the, from the 1st of January through the 3rd or 4th of January. And I saw that year after year, and it made no sense to me. And what my co-author, Stacey Dickert Conlon, and I were able to do was show that some families were timing their births for late December to avail of the tax benefits of those late December births. And, uh, you know, we did everything possible to kill off that result, show that wasn't true, but it turns out it is true. It's not, it's not random. The same women who would benefit the most in a financial sense are the ones who go for inductions or cesareans in late December. And that's what got me thinking much harder about the use of medical technology in low-value conditions. And that, as you know, is something that I've spent the past 20 years studying. Right. Well, it's good to see that romance hasn't died. Uh, 
<laughs> well, so so why don't we, why don't we start big picture? And I know you have uh, strong opinions about how healthcare organizes and uh, pays for itself, uh, uses resources sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways. Could you give us the Amitabh Chandra fifty thousand foot view of the of the current uh, healthcare industry? And maybe while you're doing that, give us a sense of how big a hole we've dug ourselves into and what it's going to take to get us out of it. So let me just start um, with kind of the three challenges, Dave, that, you know, I think every country around the world is wrestling with. I think of those three challenges as being the challenge of coverage, making sure that folks who can't afford health care have access to it. Um, The second challenge is value, making sure that when we buy health care, what we pay for it we get more than that back in the form of outcomes. And the third challenge is the challenge of innovation. So do we have uh, an incentive system where we are incenting the creation of, of new technologies that are actually valuable to us? It turns out if you think of those three challenges, coverage, value, innovation, it's very easy to do any two of those three. You could do a system that's very high value care that has tons of innovation, but really it doesn't extend its largesse to the poor and the sick, and so it fails on the first challenge. You could have a system that in theory covers everybody with high-value care, but it really cannot absorb the cost of a breakthrough medical intervention. So I think that you know, whether you're looking at healthcare in Switzerland or the UK or Germany or, 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 or the United States, it's easy to find systems that have done two out of the three, very hard, I would say impossible, to find a system that's done all three out of three. Interestingly, in the United States, since 2010, we've only been caught up with the first challenge, the challenge of coverage, and I would say that's the easiest challenge um, to take on, and we've been you know, thinking about that for the past eight years. What we have not been thinking about is asking the question of why is coverage so difficult? And the answer is because it's expensive. And so we really haven't done much to take on the fundamental cost drivers in healthcare and make healthcare kind of a much more high value industry. If we could do that, we would find that the cost of coverage would plummet and the first challenge would be a lot easier to take on. Yeah, well, if Meatloaf were here, he'd say uh, or he'd sing, two out of three ain't bad. Um, I, I actually think we need to get it all done uh, and we should be able to do that in the U.S. We should be able to cover everyone, provide great value care and unleash the American innovation machine in and ways. And I think you're exactly right. right. I think that when I evaluate healthcare proposals, I evaluate them through this lens of how do, how do I score them on coverage? How do I score them on value? How do I score them on innovation? The ACA, I scored very highly on coverage and very poorly on value and innovation. It didn't really take on those two challenges. Right, right. But I think we can do all three. And you know, to your question about digging ourselves into a hole, we will dig ourselves into a hole as long as we take on coverage without taking on value and innovation. So <laughs> I, have, I have a friend that likes to say that uh, sacred cows make the hes- best hamburger, you know. Uh, uh, so if we're going to really take on the cost issue, uh, we're going to have to to slay some sacred cows. Who who are number one, two, and three on your list of of uh, participants in the healthcare industry that we really need to disrupt so that we we get to the second component, uh, the better value, uh, better outcomes at lower cost. 
I think you said it exactly right. It's not like there's one industry that has a monopoly within healthcare and delivering low value care. I think every part of this ecosystem can have some blame laid at its feet. But I would start with the hospital industry, simply because hospitals are important, but they're also incredibly expensive. They account for one in three of all healthcare spending. So about 33% of spending in the US is in hospitals. Most hospitals are local monopolies. So unlike pharmaceutical companies, they're really not competing with each other. Many leading hospitals are not just local monopolies, but they're local monopolies with nonprofit status. So when they earn money, they can use that tax protected money to buy up their competition, increase rates even further, or invest in low value capital expansion projects, which allows their CEOs to show regulators that they're really low margin, but they're really low margin businesses in a very artificial sense. So we have to start with ideas that disrupt the hospital industry. Mm-hmm. You know, Amitabh, I'm, I'm increasingly of the opinion that the disruptive force in healthcare is full risk contracting. Um, we've been wedded to some version of cost plus reimbursement since Medicare's creation in the mid '60s, uh, and today it's you know fee for service. But as we, we move out of fee-for-service, which rewards activity, usually disconnected from outcomes uh, entirely, uh, and into full-risk contracting, all of the incentives kind of turn on their head. Um, and one, I wonder if you agree with that and if you might be able in your best labor economist terms uh, or healthcare economist terms or both, um, sort of talk about how – a shift in how we buy healthcare uh, could bring about exactly the types of benefits that you're looking for. You know, greater access, more convenient access, better use of technology, and then when it comes to delivery, right care, right time, right place, and maybe most importantly, or at least equally importantly, a transparent price. Uh, all of which can lead to perhaps as much innovation on the service delivery side as, as we've seen on the, the technology side. Right, Dave. I think that, you know, if you think about the challenge, which is we want and we agree on needing high-value healthcare, well, it's good to ask, what do we mean by that? Value is just total patient outcomes divided by total costs. That's what value is. So we want things that increase the numerator and decrease the denominator. And the only way to do that is full risk contracting. We want providers to compete on the numerator and on the denominator at the same time, which is something that they've never really done. They've neither competed on the numerator nor the denominator. So you can see how this is going to be an arduous journey for for those provider groups and hospital systems that have gotten quite comfortable with the status quo. So if we agree on what value-based care is and we agree that like we want to move to it, I think another question we can ask is what are the kinds of institutions that are ready for full risk capitated payments? And if you look at the, the DNA of the organizations that are ready for it, you start to realize, or at least I start to realize that not everyone in America 
is ready for it. Fee-for-service healthcare has been so insidious. It has done so much damage to, to providers in our country that it's actually going to take us a while to wean them off of fee-for-service. But let me tell you what I mean by this. To receive a risk-based, a fully you know, 100% risk-based contract, an organization would need to know its underlying cost structure. So not just what do I pay doctors in the aggregate or how much did I spend on running this MRI facility, but what it really cost me as an organization to put in one more stent or do one more MRI. And that is much more than knowing the cost of the stent or the cost of the radiologist time. It's really thinking much harder about the marginal cost of running the operating room for two extra hours and how many anesthesiologists and techs that may require. It's only when you know your costs that you know where the waste is inside your organization. And I think most organizations have no idea, absolutely no idea what their costs are. They know what their reimbursement is and they tend to think that, that there's some sort of relationship between reimbursement and cost, which is absolutely not true. The second thing that organizations will need if they're accepting a risk-based contract is very rich data on their patient's longitudinal experiences. So in other words, if I go in for a hip replacement to a particular hospital and get discharged two days later, find my way down to Florida where I have a complication, how does the provider who did the hip replacement back in Cleveland learn about the discomfort that I had in Florida? Most organizations do not have access to longitudinal outcomes. I think that we're also just going to need a lot of humility and courage, which is sorely lacking amongst the more elite players in American medicine. So to your point, I do agree with you that risk-based contracting or you know, 100% risk-based contracting is the way to go. But the set of organizations that are ready to accept those payments is actually quite, quite small. Elite hospitals, do not have the humility and courage to actually say, we don't know our knowledge of costs. We don't have longitudinal outcomes. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have to make investments. That's not the way that they're thinking. So I think the transformation will come from smaller organizations that are looking to expand market size. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That You know, I really have come to believe that that fee-for-service is, is healthcare's kryptonite. It, uh, it weakens the the ability of the system overall to do what it really uh, needs to do and actually wants to do. Uh, we actually require caregivers often to be heroic to do the right thing for patients. Uh, it should be just the opposite. Um, it should be easier uh, to do the right thing for patients and technology should support it and, and it just, just doesn't. I, I do want to ask you though uh, about um, an experiment Right in your in your uh, neck of the woods, which is uh, Mass Health uh, going completely to uh, provider-based full risk contracting for its Medicaid population, uh, shared savings in 2018, full risk in 2019. Um, obviously, it's just starting, so there's no uh, no results yet. But uh, you know, you're you're right there, kind of watching uh, the state try to implement the policy. They're including a a social determinants factor in the in the payment formulary. Um, the health systems who lobbied for this are are starting to organize themselves to try to figure out 
uh, with a difficult population? How do we assess health status? Um, figure who's uh, at most risk for a, an acute episode and then intervene. So health status assessment, prediction, and intervention. Um, so what, what, what's your sense of, of how that will play out? And quite honestly, I, I really admire that Massachusetts is being so bold in thinking about using payment methodologies to try to change practice patterns and really deliver on the promise of, of better health care for everybody in the state, particularly low-income people. So – I mean, you may not be surprised to know that I think it's absolutely terrific. I mean, Massachusetts is home for so many revolutions, especially revolutions in healthcare, and and it's very exciting to see Medicaid lead on improving the value of care that Medicaid beneficiaries receive. And I think they figured out something that you were just sharing: that the only way to to do this properly is to allow providers, allow doctors, nurses hospitals to capture the value of the care that they're receiving, but also then be on the line when they're not able to manage the social determinants of health, which I firmly do believe can be managed. So I think it's very exciting. I think the challenge that Massachusetts will have is that some of the providers in Boston, in Worcester, in Springfield are up to the challenge, but they tend to be physician-led organizations. I do not believe that the hospital-led organizations are really up to the task of taking on the social determinants of health. The social determinants of health have to be dealt with at home and in people's communities. And hospitals do not have any knowledge of people's homes and their communities. They might get into a financial contract with another company that does. But I don't think that's as, as the same as really having firsthand knowledge of the issue at home, number one. Number two, our goal is to keep these people out of the hospital. That's the only way these organizations will make money. They will make money when they find someone who's opioid dependent and they cure that person or treat that person of his or her dependency, which is going to avoid a very costly emergency room admission down the road. Hospital-based organizations will lose money if the emergency rooms started to not see as many patients because the emergency rooms are big feeders into the OR. So I think that there's just a fundamental tension between hospital-led organizations doing social determinants of health and physician-led organizations doing social determinants yeah, of health. Yeah. Well, you got your finger on the, 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 the source of tension. And yeah. if, if the payment coming in is a per-member-per-month payment – which yeah. is essentially an insure a pooled insurance uh, risk structure. Um, then you got to figure out how to reward the uh, the ERs when they do less rather than doing more. Um, so you know you're right. I think that that'll be that'll be tough. Well, we'll uh, maybe we'll talk to you in another year or so, and you can tell us how how Mass Health is doing. But it's it's one of many very interesting experiments that are happening in the marketplace and the signals uh, that, are, that are coming from established incumbents, uh, particularly in the payer side, that um, existing uh, business models aren't sufficient to uh, allow them to remain competitive in the post-reform marketplace are pretty strong. I mean, the CVS, Aetna, um, United acquiring the old healthcare partners, uh, Walmart talking to Humana, so on and so forth. Uh, not to mention on the provider side, the University of Oklahoma uh, 
buying its hospital back at an enormous price from HCA and then HCA uh, acquiring one of the stronger um, uh, health systems, nonprofit health systems in, uh, uh, in the southeast, Mission Health in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, and I've, I've been told uh, by the CEO, Ron Paulus, at, um, uh, at Mission that when this deal settles, they will have the largest per capita foundation in the country. So something that will spin off tens of millions of dollars to invest in, in health for the needs and it will be, in terms of the people it's serving, the largest per capita foundation in the country. So all kinds of – and then, you know, just – Recently, ProMedica announcing it's acquiring the largest skilled nursing facility company, Manorcare, in the country. So a Toledo-based nonprofit um, suddenly getting into the national skilled nursing. So their business – so there is just a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and that's part of what leads me to believe that uh, we are at this point where if you buy it, that the risk-based contracting is the disruptive element that's getting entrenched enough that we're – Jumping from the uh, from the early adapters to the early majority, the pragmatists who uh, are saying, "Huh, we see how this is going to play out. We need to to change how we're doing things." And so, my guess is we'll we'll see continued acceleration, and that will put pressure on any area of inefficiency in the system, uh, which which is a good thing. Um, I don't know. I, I just threw a lot at you. I'll let you let you comment on some of that. Well, Dave, you have an optimistic take on a lot of these mergers. I am a little bit more skeptical, and so let me um, share or let me develop my skepticism with you. Okay. A lot of the mergers that that I see are what economists call horizontal mergers, where hospitals buy up other hospitals or physician practices buy up other physician practices. Horizontal mergers have almost without exception, led to higher prices yep. and lower quality for patients, if you look at the historical record. Now, when the horizontal mergers happen today, um, hospital CEOs often say, you know, we need to merge because we are delivering all this integrated health care, and so we need to be merged with all these other entities to, to, to deliver a seamless experience to our patients. That's all great in theory. In practice, what happens is larger organizations can command higher prices from payers simply because they're larger and wield much more monopoly power. I think the city you live in Chicago and the city right. I live in Boston are exhibit A for the damage that horizontal mergers can do to premiums. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another kind of merger that I think we're seeing now which could be very exciting. These are non-standard vertical mergers. Right, where, right. You know, you see CVS Aetna, that's the one that you mentioned. Now, right. This could be very, very exciting. The jury's still out, but there are a number of reasons to think that healthcare should be delivered much more locally. Uh, my provider should be inside my local CVS. I don't really care about my insurance company. Why isn't that called CVS? I think that like those non-standard vertical mergers could be a source of great optimism and could end up being uh, little engines for reform. The horizontal mergers, which we've seen between hospitals, between pharma companies, between physician groups, I'm not at all a fan of. 
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm with you there. I, I actually walk that fine line between skepticism and cynicism on a regular basis and the, the history of mergers generally in healthcare has been to increase leverage, not, not become better, uh, better providers or better payers or deliver better outcomes. Um, but again, if, if, if I'm right, if we're right that um, this uh, full risk contracting is something that's here to stay, uh, that starts to flip some of the incentives around and uh, at least uh, for the enlightened encourages different types of business models that to do what what you're talking about doing uh, but maybe as we're we're going to that let me let me uh, talk to you about the regulatory uh, environment and uh, I, I this is an area where I am incredibly discouraged uh, when you think big picture uh, about the regulatory uh, scheme for healthcare in the U.S., we regulate hospitals at the federal government level. Uh, we regulate insurance companies at the state level. Uh, because of vertical integration, they're increasingly getting into one another's business. Uh, the FTC is using a model, a concentration model developed in the 1950s focused on inpatient volume. Uh, that doesn't reflect at all the actual activity. And since you mentioned uh, Chicago where we are, we had this um, remarkable uh, FTC challenge to a merger um, between Advocate and North Shore, uh, which the FTC basically got thrown out because it was going to raise prices in one zip code in the North Shore using their, their concentration index. Um, and the, the entity challenging it was Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, which had over 70 percent market share in the state. And what most people have come to believe is Blue Cross was challenging the merger not because they cared about a price in um, the zip code area in the North Shore that uh, deemed to have too much concentration. They were worried that Advocate North Shore would have enough scale in the marketplace to offer a competing insurance product. So you literally had the FTC coming in and killing a potential merger that actually would have improved uh, kind of vertical competition uh, in the region. So it just drives me nuts. But could you maybe talk about how we get to uh, the promised land in, in healthcare uh, Without a, an enlightened regulatory structure that, that sort of sees the world as it is today and, and not the way it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. You know, it's funny, Dave. I think I might actually be more optimistic about the quality of regulation. I, I agree with you that there have been many lapses. But I got to tell you, um, let me share with you two stories that make me optimistic. Okay. One is, you know, before these non-standard vertical mergers were announced, we, about two years ago, a year and a half ago, um, heard of more standard horizontal mergers. So, you know, Humana, Cigna, Aetna, United, all of these guys wanted to kind of merge with each other too. Right. And that right. would have been unambiguously bad for patients. And doctors, and I was very encouraged to see the Department of Justice step in and put an end to all of those mergers. Locally in Massachusetts, I think we could ask more of the Attorney General's office. Um, but at the same time, I will say that the Massachusetts Attorney General has been at the front line of pointing to the perils of greater vertical integration, especially of, of, of more horizontal integration, especially when. 
Um, the, the merging hospitals are large nonprofit academic medical centers with a lot of brand who are acquiring smaller hospitals, but then try to get the smaller hospital, you know, into its network so that the smaller hospital gets the same rates as the, as the home academic medical center. So I've actually been very encouraged with the general trajectory of regulation. What I don't know the answer to, and here's where it all kind of breaks down for me is, as you know, you can't use the Sherman antitrust law to break up an existing monopoly. You can only use it to prevent a monopoly being formed. Right. So what do we do about all the monopolies that are already out there, be they in the hospital area or in the payer area? That is something that I really struggle with, which is why I keep coming back to this idea of creating an, uh, 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 creating an environment where new entrants can enter and actually bring disruption from the outside. Yeah, no. We really don't know if another way to do it. Right, right. We, we're going to have to take it away from. Them. Well, as long as we're talking about monopolies, why don't we uh, why don't we delve into one of our favorite topic areas, which is the whole pharmaceutical industry? And obviously, being in Boston, you're you're in the center of it. Uh, Sixty Minutes recently did a story on Mallincrop and uh, a drug drug they produce called uh, Axar that. Uh, Treats seizures in babies, about two thousand babies a year, and you know it's a pretty amazing story. Um, this drug developed in the fifties, uh, very effective, works. In two thousand one, it's been off patent forever. But in two thousand one, uh, the dosage cost was was forty dollars, so forty dollars a dose. Uh, today, the dosage cost is forty thousand dollars. So, it has literally had a thousand percent increase. Uh, during the, the course of this um, sort of 15 to 20-year to run where we've seen this astronomical jump, um, Mallinckrodt has, has bought their uh, chief competitor, a Canadian uh, firm producing a similar drug um, and you know, practice this type of, of widespread uh, price manipulation. And fully 37 percent of the company's revenues, it's a big publicly traded company, come from this one drug. Uh, so we've, we've created absolute uh, monopoly, mo- monopolistic pricing power in this sector for a drug and, it, and the sort of the hook for the 60 minute story is the city of Rockford, Illinois had two babies with this uh, condition for which they paid over half a million dollars and uh, – it was forcing the city to cut its uh, police and fire spending. It's um, so literally, you know, treating these two babies with a drug that's been around for forever uh, is is forcing real fiscal pain on a on a self insured municipality. Um, boy, talk about Gotham healthcare. So uh, so I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit how we. How we balance, you know, what's the pharma industry doing right? How is it? How has it created these um, these these monopolies, which we see in many places? Uh, what we're going to do when we get uh, the first? The, I'll, I'll use one of your terms: crappy Alzheimer's drugs that uh, uh, doesn't do very much, but um, because of all the money that the pharma industry spent trying to address Alzheimer's, uh, even if it does a little, they'll be able to charge an astronomical sum for it. And our overall ability as a society to, one, fund innovative research, uh, but two, withstand uh, this profiteering. I'm, I'm going to use that word, um, where they can, they can get 
where they can get high prices, they take them. So, um, you know, I think coming back to your theme about regulation, this is an area where the quality of the regulation is probably lacking. Um, or in other words, or maybe lacking or has really not kept up with the scientific advances. So let me explain. There's no question that we need to give innovators incentives to innovate. So in other words, if I develop something fantastic, nothing prevents you from making a facsimile of what I have invented and poured billions of dollars into making. And so I think society has to give me some kind of patents to prevent other people from ripping off my invention. And I think we understand this, we all agree with this, but this is at the root of it, um, the source of all our problems. Because once I get the patent, once you protect me from someone else coming in and making my product, I quickly realize that the next time around, Rather than actually building a new product, I should actually just be lobbying you, lobbying Congress to make it even easier for me to get patents for innovation that I haven't really done. And so I think once you go down the path of addressing market failure of innovation through patents, we've opened ourselves up then to an industry that says, wow, these patents are incredibly useful, but at the same time, wow, I can lobby for richer, longer, more generous patents without really having to do any innovation. And you see this a lot in the generics industry. You know, the generic manufacturer has not done any innovation. Generics ought to be incredibly cheap. But to your point, if a generic manufacturer discovers that she is a monopolist, in other words, that there's no other generic manufacturer producing that drug, then that generic manufacturer will price just like a monopolist would, even though it's an ancient drug. Right, right. Well, right, and that's your point. And I think yeah. the FDA, it's not in the FDA's mandate to think about the competitive landscape of the generics industry. The FDA's mandate is to approve safe and effective drugs, not safe and effective drugs that don't exhibit predatory pricing by generic <laughs> manufacturers. And so I think that is an example of a policy problem which is going to need to be addressed through an act of Congress. I don't think the FDA wants to touch pricing. It really is not equipped to deal with pricing. It's a public health agency. But we are going to have to think about you know, giving the FDA some sort of uh, some resources through the FTC so that it knows that when it pulls a product off the market because it thinks that product is unsafe, it thinks it's doing the right thing. But it, the, a much better thing to have done is to tell the manufacturer of the unsafe product, we're going to give you a six-month improvement plan so you can make a better product. And that's important because that would actually preserve some competition in the marketplace. Those kinds of insights would come out of FTC. I don't think they'll germinate out of the FDA for no fault of the FDA. I think that's another example of where regulation has really not kept up with sort of the basic economics of this industry. Well, boy, Amitabh, we have uh, we have covered the landscape uh, here. But what I always love about conversations with you is it does come back to fundamentals of, of supply and demand and level competition and enlightened regulation and um, having clear and thoughtful um, – Commentary backed up by research and, and examples um, 
is just of great benefit to uh, to the industry as a whole. And uh, I know that's how you're dedicating your your professional uh, time in terms of research and and publishing. So um, we're grateful for that. Uh, this has been a blast for me. I, I hope the audience has enjoyed it as much as I have. But uh, I guess on behalf of uh, Market Corner Commentaries, we want to thank you for spending your time with us today and uh, uh, sharing really just uh, penetrating insights into how markets work in healthcare and how sometimes it takes an outsider to tell the truth. So uh, I, I think that's probably a strength of yours. So Amitabh, thank you again so very much. Dave, you're very welcome. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for having me on your show. If you're frustrated with healthcare, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.